Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Hello and welcome to episode 172 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my life, stream, and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter, and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode of the podcast, I am joined by Dylan White. This fella has worked in the music business for over 30 years now. We're talking UK radio and TV music promotion. He's a consultant, artist management. You're going to hear how this guy worked as a multi-award winning record plugger since the early 90s. Representing so many incredible artists, including Oasis, U2, Depeche Mode, and of course, Paul Weller. We'll also take a journey back to where this all began and that desire to be a rock star. The beginning of his adventure into the world of music. And we'll hear how he managed to return to that dream in recent years. There are so many incredible stories on this one. You're going to love it. Let's get into it. Dylan White, thanks for joining me. Dan, thanks for having me on. A pleasure to be here on this uh, famous uh, podcast of yours. <laughs> well, bless you, my friend. I'm looking forward to chatting with you, not least because your career as a, as a record plugger has featured so many of my favourite bands and artists, I'll be honest with you. Obviously, Mr. Weller, this is why we're here, but people like Oasis and Stone Foundation and Fatboy Slim, Depeche Mode, The Beautiful South, Billy Bragg, who's been on the podcast, Suede, Arctic Monkeys. I mean, the list, it, it doesn't seem like it'll ever end, so we could just go on and on and on for the entire hour just naming the artists. But I mean, what a career what a, what a bunch of people you've got to work with well it's a long time it's over 30 years now that i've been a, a plugger 
and I wasn't before then. I was a first an aspiring musician. I was I'm exactly the same age as Paul, but I'm three months older than him. I was attempting to be a successful musician but failed miserably. Then started managing a young band. And through that, crucially, through Gary Crowley, this is important, Gary Crowley had the demo clash on BBC London. He was playing this band that I managed called Well Loaded. All big fans of the jam, all big fans of the Faith Brothers, all that sort of mod-style bands, right? He was playing them, and I pressed up a record for him, right, as managers do. Gary was playing it. I said, well, how do I get more people to play? Well, you need a plugger. I went, well, what's that? He went, go and see this fella called Gary Blackburn. He runs this company called Anglo Plugging. So I went to see him, and I uh, handed him some cash in a brown envelope, and he became <laughs> the plugger of this band. And he was doing Beautiful South and the Lars. So he was an established person, well-established. He got this band, he got well-loaded some play, they got some some play, right? And that was that. And then I decided to make another record for him. Keep going, keep going. They were selling out the Marquee Club, in fairness to them. They were doing quite well. It was kind of on the up. We thought we could you know, get more, so I was like, invest more money. But Gary took a liking to me, and he went, look, you're funny, you're enthusiastic, you never end, never end, right? Why don't you become a plugger and don't worry about the band? And I was fitting office furniture at the time. I was running an office furniture fitting, but that's where the money came from to make the records. We had a record studio, which was owned by a guy called Ross Anderson, who's sadly no longer with us, but he ended up working with Soul to Soul. All of those Back to Life Soul to Soul demos were done in this tiny studio in Kingley Street, and we could use it as a cheap rate because I was running the furniture business. Everyone was entwined. 1991, February, exactly. I was working on the building site. He rang me up and said, come and be a plugger. Meet me at the Word tomorrow night. I've got a band called The Farmer on. And that was that. And then I started being his radio oppo. I lived in Bayswater, and I could get into the West End easily. So you had to go to Radio 1. Long before computers, they put down a script of the show of what records were played. So you either heard it on the radio, or you had to make a note of when the plays were. And I used to do all this. And then he introduced me, I got a mobile phone. I paid for it myself, but he introduced me to someone. So I was one, you know, I was very early on the mobile phone technology. Like, mobile phone, yeah, yeah, right, play, this, that, that, blah, 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 and so on. So that gradually all built up. Billy Bragg was a person that we did. I'm a massive fan of Billy Bragg, bonkers fan of him. It was great to work with him and the beautiful South and so on and so on. And somehow we started doing stuff for Alan McGee creation. And I got to do Ride and I was the kind of radio oppo doing Ride. Gary sort of did all the meetings. There was a girl called Karen Williams and she did the TV. She runs a company now called Big Sister. We were a little trio. And basically, I did very well with Ride. I really got stuck my teeth in and got them a lot of radio play. And this, of course, impressed Alan McGee. And then he signed Oasis. Now, look, we're going to dig into these stories of Anglo. You work your way up the business to director and becoming Gary's partner in that company, right? Gary's management thing grew because he managed Fatboy Slim. Now, no one really cared about Paul Norman for quite a while. Beats International and all that. No one really cared right so he was doing bits and pieces and that obviously we got onto the second fat boy slim album and it all went off and i just carried on with the plug-in i want to take you right back to the beginning i want to take you back to your teens because this love of music was always there from the start you always love music you always love live music we're talking like slade status quo you saw the stones earl's court oh mate yeah you've done your homework i'll give you that you've done your homework yeah now look what i've got here this look at this wild 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 
Ah, this is the new book on Slade, right? On Slade, right? And Steve Brooks is in it talking about Paul bought Slade Alive and had that because we were all the same and we all knew that Slade were a real band. They weren't part of the chin and chat. And much, all right, we all liked Sweet and Mud, those kind of hits, but you knew they were somehow manufactured because they all sort of sounded the same. Right, which was the Chin and Chapman songwriting skills, right? And we knew Slade were a real band. So I'm in this book, loads, and Steve Brooks is in it, and he talks about this. Mick Tolbert is in it as well. We'll come to Mick in a bit. So basically, I first saw Slade at the Palladium, January of 1973, then saw all their other gigs in London. Upper Circle, and it was 60p. You know that, yeah. <laughs> Here's a funny thing, you see, I've still got all my, as it's visual and not audio, for your benefit, I've still got all my ticket stubs and I've got them more than little envelopes. <laughs> That's well, <laughs> wonderful. I've got page on them, so I've got exactly how old I was and what I went to. And of course, we're now, they're now 50 years old. I love it. They're not, they're not just in a box altogether. They're, they're in little envelopes each. It gets worse than that. I, for some reason, decided that when I got home, I'd write on the back of the ticket who the support act was. And I did that on every ticket. And a couple of times I didn't have the ticket. It did went. So I'd cut one out and make one. I thought that was the gig. That was the day. And that's what it cost. So I still have a record of it. And I thought you might ask me this. This is uh, important. This is 1977 now. So I'm 18. Well, I'm 18 and 19. I'm 19 in 77. Woohoo! And on 17th of April, I was at the Roundhouse. The Stranglers, who I'd fallen in love with, were headlining. Cherry Vanilla was next, but first on was the Jam. And that was the first time, in fact, the only time I saw the Jam. Sunday afternoon at the Roundhouse was quite a major gig. There was loads of them. I mean, back in the days of long hair, you know, like UFO, Motorhead, Pink Fairies, what have you, right? And then, of course, the punk thing came along. I saw the Damned there, saw the Ramones, Ramones at the Roundhouse, the Damned. It was the Trap Defense Sensible 21st birthday. First in Australians in 76, and very like wildfire they spread. I mean, the tune's phenomenal. Still a massive fan. So they, they did the roundhouse two or three times. Then that particular one started, there's always three bands. First band on was the jam. So that was pre Polydor. That was pre that first album in the city. The single would have been out. And it was like, obviously being the same age as Paul, I knew they, where they were taking their references from being the who. We were all massive Who fans, you know, like, and I was old enough. I've been, I've been to Charlton, both Charlton, 74 and 76. I saw the Who there. I don't know whether Paul was there or not. Obviously, I could see, see the Jam's reference points coming from the Who. And obviously, it was the first album and so on and so forth. And all the records, I had all the records. I had all, all the Jam's records. But I never went to see him again. I don't know why, I just didn't go again. That strikes me as strange, because you 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 then are fully into punk, you're fully into new wave. The heavy metal and the prog rock stuff goes into a well, cupboard. Well, so I'm seeing all the, all these new bands. I don't know where they played next in London, and I'd, I'd seen them and went to see other bands, and then start, then I went away for quite a while. I was living in, I, I bummed around Europe. I saw, for example, I saw Iggy Pop with Glenn Matlock on bass in Berlin. And I saw Ian Drury in Berlin. I saw the Stranglers and the Clash and the Ramones in Paris in the, the equivalent of 
the Roundhouse, funnily enough, none of there were none of them were seated. Pretty big gigs. So I was abroad. What was it about that scene, that style of music that really connected with you? It was a fucking revolution. It was the greatest thing. <laughs> it was the UK onwards. The Ramones first down. So all it was, he just woke you up, you know, and it was year zero. All those fucking Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd albums and like awkward were put in the cupboard. That was the whole point of year zero, was it started again. You just got into this, the, the hair went off and you got into all the new sound. And obviously it developed, it went on that. In fairness to the Rolling Stones, they come up with some girls, Miss You, they managed to ride the wave. But bands like Slade, obviously, that are run to the hills. And they were in a very fallow period that, as we know, though they had their second coming at Reading, 1980, and I'm very pleased that I was there. I was so proud of them. I went on my teenage idols and the rock crowd going mad. So, yeah, it's just music is just in you and that is what you love, you know. And that's a great Charlie Brown cartoon where he goes and he gets me right there. And that's the thing. You put on a record, you don't have to wait and think, oh, I'm not going to like it. It just gets you. It just gets you right there, you know, whether you're listening to Eaton Rifles or A Town Called Malice or whatever. You know, I really love Bitterest Pill. That was a great single. That was, And that would be some uh, a woman could sing that really well. That could be a monster soul kind of smash record for somebody if they wanted to cover it. Bitterest Pill, this wonderful record, wonderful. And this was before your plugging days. And I mentioned earlier on, the dream was to be a rock star, right? From 78, 79, 80, I was writing songs, playing in bands. And in the early 80s, I was, that's why I didn't go to the jam again. I was playing myself. <laughs> I was playing the Rock Garden and other such venues in various bands, which has all now come to fruition. In the fact, I'm sure you're aware, I've released my album. We're going to get to Unfinished Business. I'm looking forward to chatting about that. I didn't have much money, right, because I was basically living from hand to mouth, right? Uh, I was busking. I was a busker. And I was trying to survive and live. And so you didn't really go to big gigs. I was playing all the time, with mainly in South London. But the Rock Garden was a great gig to get. Because you too had played there and the Smiths had played there. Playing the Rock Garden, hustling that gig and getting that. I was like, yes, got it. So I was hustling to do all that. And then the jam came to an abrupt end. And we get onto the Star Council. And speak like a child. And what a video, that video on the bus and they're going, and all these technical, I mean, it was, that was his greatest, we know this, the songwriting, the sheer songwriting, you know, speak like a child. And this is when Mick Tolbert appears. I'd known him since 1974. He came from the same area as me. We ended up living in Merton Park, which is a sort of London suburban, couldn't get more suburbs than Merton Park. And I knew him and the drummer of Merton Park, Simon Smith. I didn't know the other two. And Simon Smith. And we used to all be jamming in the garage. And he'd come and play with me and all the rest of it. And Mick had this band. I've asked him about them a while back. And the name slips my mind now. But he was in the... I remember him playing in the youth club. And uh, we'd all be there watching. And he was still there on the piano. And as we know, I didn't know at the time, he was also playing on... You don't really hear it, but there's keyboards on the jam record. And it was him. So there was another guy called Jamie Telford, who I've been promoting. He's in his 60s as well. And he has a band called My Glass World. But he played keyboards with the jam on one particular tour, maybe when they had brass as well. He played on that tour. I love these little connections, man. This is great. Yeah, he's a highly skilled keyboard player, highly skilled. Right? He, he, record, he writes songs and he puts out albums like 31 a month. Well, I can't keep up with him. Anyway... 
So Mick Tolbert, the Merton Parkers had their moment of glory. As we know, you need wheels, right? They did the Marquee Club and we all went and that. And that was as far as they got. And then Mick appears as like resurfaced with uh, Paul Weller Star Council. And again, it's the songs, the, the, the records, that the, every time these singles, absolutely wonderful. We know this, this whole catalogue of songwriting. You know, and I was struggling to write songs. And this is in the 80s. So I'm still recording and had this studio and doing demos. And it was like struggling and struggling to write songs, you know. And you do your best and that's all you can do. But I had this, there was this one song called Watching Cranes. And I, when I played live, right, people, used, they did, they, I didn't make this up. People used to come up to me and go, Dill, that's a hit. Dill, that's a hit. Still, that's a great song. We're going to return to that song a little bit later on. Nick Haywood, when he was on the podcast, went through a similar thing and he said he just loved forming bands. He loved coming up with titles of bands. What can you remember? What titles of bands? I know there were Staggering Monkeys was one of them, but what titles? I'll show you something funny here. What bands do we have? Like this. See, being a hoarder, like most music fans, never throwing anything away, I kept all my demos, as you've seen with the ticket stubs already, I kept all my demos, and in fact, I made a box, and I put them in it, all the cassettes. So we have Staggering Monkeys. That was the first band that I played a gig with, which was in 1981. Staggering Monkeys, some of my songs are some other people's, Staggering Monkeys. We then became Maureen's Wrestling. <laughs> but then I really hit on a, on a winner, because this is the thing. Getting people to come and rehearse, like, a bloody nightmare. Oh, I've got time, I can't do it, oh, I'm busy. Oh. And now this one guy who got into the, the synth thing, he went, we'll just use tapes. we just forget the guitar. We get into tapes. You know, we had uh, Cheers for Fears had come out. So I went, I got it. Heroes on the Inside. Oh, that's good. Heroes on the Inside. And I thought that was what we did the Rock Garden with. And we had a tape machine. My songs, he was a bit older than me. He could play bass and he could play keys a bit. And he had a small studio. Now, he worked. He had a proper job. So, therefore, he had the money to buy this equipment. We record them in his small studio, which was like a small shed in his garden. And we had the backing tracks. So, it's the two of us. I played the acoustic guitar, rolled the tape, and that was it. And he was on syndromes. We sounded modern. We sounded 100% modern. Heroes on the inside. That was our shot. Anyway, that came to an end in 81, 82, 83, around then. That, that finished. And then I became Dylan and the Dandelions. <laughs> and I was recording stuff. Then I had saxophones, guitars. It was all recorded. We did very, very few gigs. We did one interesting. We did one at the Pindar Wakefield, which is now the Water Rats. Oh, I love that place. Cool. So Dylan and the Dandelions was my final sort of shot into like, 83 into the 80s. So Star Council are flying everywhere, all the rest of it. And I'm still peddling these demos. And there was one guy, I'm still friends with him, called Andy Woodford, who was an AR man at Virgin. And he gave me the time of day to go and see him. He went, Well, you could probably have a novelty hit. I went, All right, where do I sign? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people have done all right on those. <laughs> he didn't sign me up for a novelty hit. And that is just kind of that. But I've still got all my rejection letters. And I'm going to start scanning them in, actually. There's some names on them and that. I'm going to go, you know, you... Were... <laughs> that was it. And then then that all came to an end. Uh, I realised I was getting to the point of being 30, and I realised this wasn't happening. And then, like, as luck would have it, 
a lot of luck in life. Luck would have it. There were these young guys that were working with me, fitting furniture, all these young musicians. And I was impressed with them. And this one kid, he was only 17, he could write songs like this, just, just wrote songs. Look, here's one, here's another one, here's another one. And I said, well, I can't do that. And I remember when I signed them to a management contract and they were under 18, so I had to get them parents to do it all. So that was it. We're all, we're all still friends. And that was well loaded. And that started the path into Gary Crowley, Demo Clash. And famously, he always says this, Swade did the Demo Clash. Every time he sees Bernard Butler or any of them, they all shout at him, 224-2000. He had to ring this fucking number. <laughs> You had a phone at home, you went in a bloody call box. Ring this damn number, yeah. Let me give you another phone number, all right? So this is 0181 910 4666. Oh, an old Angler number. I've got all the CDs from the from the early days of Weller, and that number, that sticker was on all of those. I probably actually never rang the numbers because then I had a mobile phone and it was programmed in. <laughs> I was like, oh, you're a bloody yuppie, you are. Oh, you're a yuppie. You've got a mobile phone. Oh, you're a yuppie. All of that nonsense, right? And it was a, I went, this is the future. It's communication. It gives me the ability to communicate with someone and someone to communicate with me no matter where I am. It's the future. It was the fact you were clutching the file facts as well, though. That was the problem. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I've still got them. And it, not recently, but a while back, I flicked through it. You see all these notes and these names. And when I first wrote these names down, but that's your hustle of life. Now, for Paul, back to him, in 74, 75, when he was trying to get his first band going, they would have hustled gigs and they would have hustled. And, of course, his dad, John, helped him. But the path of them was very quick because before we know it, you know, the jam had formed perfectly, the clothes, the guitars, the songs, and they're off. So his entire life has been what it is. But that is so rare that power of the plugger in, in the time that when you started it hadn't changed too much since those days so that would have been clive banks for the jam we then heard from spanner on the po- on the podcast when you joy anglo that model hasn't changed a huge amount of that time but obviously now it's a world apart right paul has been a songwriter all his life there's only a handful of people that he, i don't think he's ever had a job there's a handful like that that they've never worked it was a handful a lot went to university did some work you know, not much. And most people, of course, they only shine brightly for a short period of time. So we're now in the, the 90s, and I've hustled with Gary Blackburn to be a plugger. And we're doing well with uh, Beautiful South. Can't really do any wrong. Billy Bragg, getting him on the radio was never easy. Never, Not everyone's cup of tea. Very Marmite, Billy Bragg. Steve Wright loved him, and some people liked him. He could turn up, and he obviously was great. But that was often quite said. The only way to get Billy on the radio was to take him in. So someone did an interview with him. It was always great. Always great. He could entertain, and then he could play. So you want him on the radio, take him in. I think we had Swade. I was the junior then. Swade with his hot bands. Gary had then went to, and hustled to be, we were going to be the pluggers of Swade. So again, I was the radio hand, and Karen was the TV. So there was a very, very much three of us, and there were endless meetings. It's not like none of this Zoom business. You had to turn up for a meeting at 10 in the morning somewhere in the West End and explain what was going to happen and plan it all and do all this. So if you're doing all the, you're doing that, you can't be knocking on the doors of Radio 1 because there was an appointment system. It was rigid. The music industry is far more military than what you'd think. So Radio 1 was the mother for anything with a guitar, basically, and still is now, right? 
and Capital Radio was more pop. Right, Capital Radio, I was doing Gabrielle. So Capital Radio would play, I mean, Radio 1, in fairness, played Gabrielle as well, but Capital weren't going to be playing Suede. It wasn't going to happen. You had to do these appointments. And what happened? There were set times. So the BBC, they knew they were bombarded with people. So they kind of go, right, it's an appointment system. You ring up and we'll give you an appointment. There were certain recognised people, Spanner being one, Scott Peering, don't forget another one, Gary and they with me as Anglo, some others. And the major labels had their own in-house teams. And then there were apparently a couple of random slots for some. If you were basically some random person, you could ring up and get a slot. But you had to know exactly what time to ring exactly and ring at exactly that time and get a slot. It'd be like trying to climb Mount Everest, but you haven't a clue what you're doing. It would be like if you know the way up Mount Everest, you have a Sherpa. The Sherpa gets you to the top of Mount Everest, right? Without that Sherpa, you're standing there going, well, I've got some sandwiches and uh, I've got the boots on. Where do we go? So that is what it's like to get on the rest. So you, that's why you hired press agents and pluggers because they knew what was going on and what to do. So we're up and running with this. We may have started on Oasis that point in 93. So we were kind of like buzzing. And poor old Spanner, who was doing the first Paul Weller album, which came out on Go Discs, he struggled a bit with Above the Clouds in particular. Uh-huh, oh, yeah. So the first Paul Weller album was had a, quite a lukewarm reception. Now, fairness to him, he was doing the Albert Hall because I went to see him there. But the, And I did think the audience was quite old. It was the audience that had grown up with the Jam and the Star Council still going to go and see Paul Weller at the Albert Hall. And Spanner struggled to get those records onto Radio 1, right? And they basically go this then, turn around, and went, well, look, well, there's these two characters upstairs here and this girl carrying them and flying with all these acts. Why don't you give them a go? So Spanner was, and don't think he wasn't very happy about it, was told, look, thanks, but no thanks. So then what happens, and you'll know the exact release date, but in early 93, I had Sunflower, which was the first single from Wildwood. Obviously, heard the album. I thought, well, I remember, just remember since that Gary had a meeting with Paul, he said, what did I tell him? I says, you know, it's not going to be walking apart. This could be quite difficult. This could be difficult. His perception of him isn't going to be great at Radio 1. So I said, well, we'll get going. So I had Sunflower, and I took that in, and this producer, I remember it, crystal clear, called Sarita Jagpal. I played her Sunflower, and she went, that's fantastic. That is amazing. Went, oh, great. You like it. Fantastic. Because you couldn't just bang in there and go, oh, this is the best thing you've ever heard. This is genius. You know, you had to be all subtle and nice and high. You know, I hope you like it. And you had to be really polite. Right? Well, it wouldn't have you back. Right? So that um, was great. And she literally ran out the door and started telling people, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. This is brilliant. I thought, wow. This could be all right. And then there was another person called Lucy Armitage. So these two young ladies in their 20s were these producers of shows. And Lucy was nuts about Paul anyway. And she used to, um, you had to pester to get on the playlist of that. And I can't remember now whether Sunflower went on the playlist. I'm like, oh. People were starting to get computers, some sort of computer. And she could put on someone's computer screen. Paul Weller. 
So they can she put on please playlist Paul Weller. So Lucy Armitage, Sharita Jagpal, crucial young doctors of the new Paul Weller. Yeah, then on we went, you know. I, I can't remember exactly what level we got. And then Wildwood came out, and that must have gone on a play. I can't believe that didn't go on a play. I can't remember what level we got to with it. So we were kind of like on the move now. Well, it was hung up and out of the sinking. We did those. And then, never mind, when we got to Stanley Road, obviously things are moving along even more. Can't remember what sessions Paul did. One, remember one distinctly. We did a session for Jackie Bramble. So I think it was in Newcastle, and he played. It was either Woodcutter's Son or Walk on Gilded Splinters. He played that live at lunchtime. Absolutely phenomenal. Bloody hell, this is dynamite, you know. By this point, I'm pretty sure we were on the playlist all the time now, and we must have been getting to the A-list level. I can't remember exactly what sessions he did, but he'd he'd come in and do these sessions. And of course, by '94, the other thing that was happening was Blur and Oasis were saying about how much they loved Paul Weller, and that is what triggered the whole new wave of people. Once those two camps were going, oh yeah, Paul Weller, and there was an, a famous NME front cover, the Modfather. I think he may have even been with Damon Albarn or with. Noel, I can't remember, but he was the mod father. And this is where he was clearly, he clearly looked older. He looked much older than Damon Albarn and Noel, but he was the mod father. And that was uh, um, where they, those two bands raved about him. And I think he did a Phoenix Festival. That had been 94, Phoenix Festival headline, that was up at that. And there was a Steve Lamack interview who was doing the evening session. And I must have been Steve interviewing Paul. And Steve was banging on and on about Oasis and, and Blur. And Paul was a bit like, they're just young bands coming through. Like, you know, talk, talk about <laughs> yeah, you're going to talk about my stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and he wasn't so keen to talk about, if I remember rightly. But Steve had got this thing. That, and, and, and that was where the younger audience came from. It came through. And then all these other young kids that clearly weren't around for the chat. They weren't even around the Star Council, right? Yeah, they just weren't around. Right? They were. They're like, oh, what's all this? You know. That, well, that's me you're describing. I discovered Paul through Aha, oh yeah, and then that back. You suddenly discover this this incredible back catalogue, and it's like, oh my god, it just blows your mind. Yeah. Well, then that was, of course. Then we we still in the world of CD. There was no um, Spotify or anything like that. You either bought CDs, you had to go to a secondhand record shop to yeah. find. The old records, you know. So if you were keen, you would have gone to the second-hand record shop to buy Jam Records or Star Council Records to think, oh, I want more Paul Weller. They were gradually, obviously, coming out. Well, they probably were out on CD by then. And so it went on, really. Around that time as well, I mean, the world of plugging, your life, I mean, was it two years in a row, Plugger of the Year? I was Plugger of the Year in 93 and 94, individual person. The independent Plugger. Then they made it independent plugging company and that ran for 11 years in total of which we won seven <laughs> wow seven times anglo plug including the two of me seven times we were pluggers of the year independent pluggers of the year and after that 11th year which is about 2006 seven that's in there so i can't remember they made it just pluggers of the year and all the national teams are in it as well. They merged it all together. Before that, there'd been a record company team one, 
and an independent one. Then it became harder. The plugger of the year thing for me, it basically, that, that was end of any doubters. And, it, you know, I was humbled by it. It was a vote by, by radio and TV people to pick your number one person. And I've got it two years on the trot. So there was no, like, well, he's not very good. Uh, well, actually. So, you know, that was a great accolade. And then as a company, we still did it. So if people like, you know, we're the younger team. I mean, it was a bad hit machine, you know. We had a lot of us, and uh, it was hard work. It was nonstop. The phone never stopped ringing, you know, but you are under an immense amount of pressure. Right? I say this, it's about, there's, you know, I had a lot of serious phone calls. Uh, one MD says, we're a million in the hole. You've got to get this one away. You've got to get this on the radio. We're a million in the hole. You've got to get it away. You know, and you're talking to these people to persuade them to add they only had four or five records a week, and they've been thrown 200, you know, and it's not easy. But when you got it, it was the, the greatest moment. And, I, and this is, again, before computers. The secretary, Claire, who basically was a gatekeeper of Radio 1, knew everybody. She would be go upstairs and come down with these playlists printed. They, they, they kept changing when they were doing them, but for the sake of argument, they were like 1 p.m. Friday lunchtime. They come down with this paper. We were all standing outside with our mobile phones, and you'd look at this list, and you were either added or you weren't. And you were, <laughs> yes! Right? You either moved that one. You never, ever, ever said we're on that list if you hadn't seen it because you just didn't know if you'd made it. Is this the Wailing Wall? Yeah, the Wailing Wall was it was a bigger reception. In Egton House, you could stand in reception, you stand in it. And she had came down the lift with the playlist there, and you got them there and then you were inside, and then you wailed at the wall. Ah! You know, but then and then you ran out the door. But then they, then they moved the building to Golding House, Clipstone Street, and the reception there was very tight. You couldn't you couldn't stand in the doorway. So we were to stand outside. <laughs> you're still wailing. You're still you're wailing at the whole building. Then it was a GPO town looking down on you. How much of that connection is about the chemistry, the relationship that you have with the producers and the the radio DJs and that versus the quality of the acts, the the quality of the it's, material you've got? It's a mix of all of it. It's a mix of all of it. Well, I will look anyone in the eye. I've never worked a dud record. Right? I may have worked records that maybe I wasn't so keen on myself. That was part of a deal that we we're going to do them, but they were not crap. You could never ever go to someone and go, "Hey, this is great. You're going to play it, right?" Someone could someone and go, "That's not for me." For example, I did um, twenty-one seconds to go. Twenty-one seconds to go. So solid crew was that? Solid crew. Yeah, twenty-one seconds to go. Twenty-one seconds to go. Right. That may not be everyone's cup of tea. Right, but it was a hit and it was a bona fide in that genre, right? Porty's Head was another one that was very difficult. People didn't get Porty's Head. It wasn't crap. It wasn't crap, right? It was just they didn't understand it. Mm. And what happened, there was a bit of a um, pause in it. We, I was struggling. Couldn't get him on the radio. We were struggling. And it got to the end of one year, like, and we went, tell you what, we'll wait till next year and come do something again. And also... Two things happened. We got them on later with Jules Holland, which Gary did this with Karen, right? Jules Holland was new then. The producer, Mark Cooper, came to see them in a pub in Clapham. They played, and she was quite quite a nervous performer. 
So she put on this, they put on this gig and they did this late on Jules Hollands. And we then reissued the records and the same record that had been, I can't remember what it was now, but had been thrown in the bin, rejected four months earlier, went on the A-list. Exactly the same record, but it was like, no, not for us. Four months later, it's like, oh, this is like wonderful. How funny. <laughs> where you have to think, you have to believe in it and go, right, this isn't fitting. And why isn't it fitting? And have we got the time of this right and whatever? You work it out. And as a plugger, you obviously, it's almost like you're an extension of both the labels, the Go Discs in that case, but also the artists, so Weller and his team. So what were your connections like with Paul around that time? Oh, yeah, it's, it's serious connections. Because you have to discuss with them the session, what we're going to do. You know, you have to have an advanced call. Right, this is what we're going to do. This is what they want. Are you happy playing this particular song? You know, they're going to want the hit or whatever it is, right? They go, so are you happy playing that? And are you happy playing this? And this is how long I'm going to do. And this is going to be the interview. Paul, as we know, doesn't have a fall. So was not going to be interviewed by certain DJs. I can't remember the detail of all he was there. But I know in particular, he was very keen on Johnny Walker. Always has been. He regarded Johnny Walker as a music man. So he was always happy to be interviewed by Johnny Walker. He'd been interviewed by Gary Crowley. Janice Long, Steve Lamack, Joe Wiley, those. But some of the daytime ones, he didn't really want to entertain. But since he did this Jackie Brambles thing, 100% he was Jackie Brambles. Yeah, so you you would have to go through what's what we're going to do, and you'd be there. And I'll tell you, as a great story we did with Lucy Armitage, because she Lucy Armitage, she'd been so supportive. Must have been on the Stanley Road era like it, we, it was up you know it was like number one and all that but Paul had to was doing a session probably it made available and what we did Gary was in the car outside Radio 1 Paul was lying in the back seat of the car and I said Lucy Lucy we can come up to the made available you can come you know come say hello to Paul he's doing a session in an hour or two so go, oh, do you know, Gary's outside he'll, he'll, he'll give you a lift up there so Lucy was all right. I said, Lucy got into the front seat of the car and I went, I, was like, I won't get in now. I've got an appointment. I've got an appointment to do. You know, my car was just around the corner. I've got, I've got to do some stuff here. So Gary says, yeah, 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 well, I'll take you up there. Yeah, we'll see Paul in there. And, you know, made it up. And the driver had a call and Paul comes up from the back seat. He goes, I know, Lucy, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for all your help with my records. Thank you. And she couldn't believe it. But he was game to like do a thank you, a special thank you, because we'd said how helpful she'd been with this, you know. It always seems to me that he was more comfortable, like you say, with the mute, talking about his craft, talking about it, the, the music, the kind of, you know, the showbiz aspect of it was never really a thing. You know, the kind of pop and prattle DJ would not be his type of approach, right? No, 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 no. And that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. He's not that way. He's in it for the music. And that's it. He has no interest in showbiz at all. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Let's talk Oasis, because there's obviously that connection as well around that time with you know, their playing on Paul's records, his playing on theirs and that. Am I right in thinking the first radio play that you got of Oasis was just from a demo tape? Right, what happened here, Oasis, so McGee had signed them, so I actually believe that this could come to light to later on. They're actually signed to Sony in America through a guy called Dave Massey, who was an English guy, clocked them. And then it was done through creation as opposed to being done through Sony. They wanted to be with 100% they're going to be with McGee. McGee was the one. And Marcus Russell, I don't think Marcus, Marcus wasn't the manager. Marcus Russell appeared as the manager. I don't know how he got that bit. You'd have to, I can't remember all of that. It's all in the film Supersonic. Ever seen the film Supersonic? You have to see it. I did a lot of work on that. I'm not interviewed on it because interestingly, the film has hardly has any what is known as backroom people. The film is either Noel and Liam or Paul, the other brother. There's hardly any Marcus in it, hardly any Alan McGee. It's really much them, yeah. no people like us. So they had a big timeline and I took all the records with the stickers on. I took them all that. I've got boxes of cassettes with all the interviews and they took all of them and transferred them and hold on. What happened there then was Oasis was signed and we had this Columbia demo and they were going on tour with Whiteout and Whiteout already had a record on the radio or with like the bigger band, it seemed. I think it may, it may have been a bit later on. This may have been on, on Shake and Make or Super Sonic, I can't remember. But the Columbia 12-inch, and I did a sticker on it, and it just said, this is the one, something like that. And there wasn't any pressure to get played. It wasn't like, you got to get this, oh, you got to get this. None of that, right, which was kind of like used to it. It was just like, just, just go in with it and see how we get on. And Radio 1 had changed at this point in that Matthew Bannister had become the new broom and the old guard of Simon Bates, who I've got on very well with, actually, were farmed off out the door, Steve Wright, etc. And this whole new broom of people, Mark and Lard were doing breakfast, then Chris Evans was doing it, of course. There's all this new breed, right? And um, had this Columbia demo, this 12-inch, right? And they put it on a playlist. C-list, but it was like, what's on a playlist? That's mad, isn't it? That was never like the pressure you've got to put this one on, you know, or you've got, you've got to put it on, you know. None of that. It was like, all right. And then, of course, that was the path, the trajectory. Every single Oasis record went on a Radio 1 playlist. They moved up to the A-list quite quickly. I can remember flying up to Glasgow for one of these Radio 1 big weekends, and they'd been added. That must have been Super Sonic or Shaken Maker. And they were like, oh, dear, well done, thanks a lot. They were all over me. Great. And here's the thing. The first session they did, I remember they played a couple of gigs in London that everyone says the first gig was the Water Rats and about 5,000 people say they were in there. But that wasn't the first. They'd done another one at a pub in Angel, which McGee put them on for the likes of us and other people just to see them. And I met them there. But it was all driven by Liam. 
Liam what? was star, the front, the person that wanted to meet. I want to have a bad word said about Liam. Oh, was very quiet, very quiet. And they had a session. I got him a session, probably an evening session. Went to Maida Vale. I said, all right, boys, well, you know, it's good to see you now because soon you'll be flying around the world. All Liam. Liam all over me. And then we did a, something on BBC London. This is a funny story. We talk about Oasis. We did a Lucy Longhurst session. And Lucy Longhurst was another broadcaster on there, right? And I think Paul Weller had done a session with her. She was a known that people come in and they were in there, Nolan and Liam. And you went, well, your brother's in, isn't you? Well, he's only if you had a sister. And Liam went, well, she could clean the drums. <laughs> and Lucy was like, <laughs> face red rage. Right? <laughs> and, uh, I didn't sort of find that amusing at all. We did this session and we left. But I had a BMW car. All pluggers had BMWs, right? It was a status symbol of like mobile phone BMW, right? And uh, they were staying at the Columbia. I can't remember Noel was there, Marcus. I can't remember all that bit. But um, Liam came out. I, I said, I'll give you the hotel if you want. He went, oh, BMW, man. Wait, you got a BMW. Hey, I'm getting that. Yeah, I'm getting in your car, man. Right? And Liam was all excited to get in the BMW for me to drive him two miles down the road. And I said, well, I'm sure you'll have your own BMW quite soon. Then, of course, it, it did all explode, as it were, by the time we got to the what's the story. And I remember he was at Finsbury Park. I think he was playing. I think he was turned up in the backstage area. And he had he had to have security. He had this big white parker on. Well, he looked like a Christmas decoration. And there was this massive fuss around him. And I just smiled and I went, there you go. It's happened. To start, right? He had this whole coat and everything. You know? And he was great. And earlier, there'd been a Reading Festival where they were signed, but they didn't have enough passes to get everybody. They weren't playing. Oh, dear, we need passes. We need passes. I can't get me mate in. I can't get me mate in. And I had to sort out passes and put on stickers and, you know, come on, get you all in, get you all in. You know, and somehow we got him and all his mates from Manchester, got them all in, you know. He was the driver. It was only subsequently when they had a few arguments, not in front of me, but where and there on ferries and what have you. And then it became to like that. Noel was the songwriter and Noel was uh, really running things here now. When we talk about Oasis, it would be remiss of me not to talk about August 1995, Oasis versus Blur, when they release a single on the same day. We've got as far as Saturated Radio 1, they've done Earl's Court already, Nebworth, I negotiated the BBC deal with that, that it could be broadcast worldwide. So it was broadcast worldwide. That was all of that. But up before then, it was on, oh, I can never remember the records. What were the two records? Uh, so Oasis was Roll With It, Blur was Country House. Thing about age, right? You just forget things. Oh, yes. oh, I can't remember what that was. So Roll With It, Country House, right? They were earlier in that. Yeah, yeah. So there'd been this kerfuffle, this mismatch, ended up on the same day. At that point, Capital Radio hadn't played either band. But in fairness to Neil Fox, and his producer, Russ Evans, who now runs Heart. But Neil Fox got it, and he wanted to support the band, right? And he would play Oasis in the evening. Virtually had to ask permission. Like Capital Radio was run by a very tight ship, by a guy called Richard Park, run very tight ship. It was a 24-hour 
pop station, none of this evening session, never mind John Peel, none of that. It was a 24-hour, this is our sound, right? He had to ask permission virtually, his producer, are we going to play Oasis, right? And Neil Fox was crucial, very helpful. And then in the end, we were getting this playlist. Now, by this point, we had fax machines. So a playlist could be faxed through. So you, we'd send faxes. Will you please play listings? Will you please play them? No emails. No emails. It's faxes. Capital Radio playlists would be faxed out at a particular time of day. I think Radio 1 is still collected. Capital plays were a lot smaller. One piece of paper. It would be faxed out at a particular time. And it came through as alphabetical. And I sent the fax machine watching it. And it came through and blur was added. So oh, no. 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 And I had to wait for this piece of paper to slowly come through, right? And we got to like, LMNO, Oasis. It was on, like, ah! And it was like, just, I still remember, I still clearly remember, like, looking at this piece of paper, sweating, waiting for, like, to get to O. And Oasis went on capital. And then the floodgate opened of the mainstream. They were no longer cool bands. Like the mainstream, they were everywhere, absolutely everywhere. She wasn't once they'd broken capital, all the commercial network just fell into place. That evolution of radio is really interesting, right? So we talk about you talk about Evans on Radio One at that point. CFI Friday is huge, takes over top of the pops, and we're all watching that, and consuming that. And we've talked a lot about Radio One, but we should talk about Radio Two because there is this journey where that becomes a huge radio station for so many artists, including Paul as he gets older as well. But it ends up becoming the biggest radio station in Europe, and I would guess a key focus for you as a plugger. Then Radio Two was a sleeping giant. No pluggers really ventured in there. So, of course, I had the beautiful South and Gabrielle. I went in there and um, very polite. It was always like, oh, we'd like an afternoon tea. We'd like a cucumber and ham sandwich. <laughs> That's why you could save me a shilling, could you? I need a half a crown it. It really felt like you were going back in time. They were playing all this stuff and you had these various DJs and I managed to get those softer records onto... Radio 2. But that was still a long way off anything from Paul Weller or anything like that. Long way off. That came much later on. A lady called Leslie Douglas, she became the controller and she revolutionized Radio 2 by about 2000, 2000, 2001. That's when she was after because she actually took me to lunch and said, I've been doing you too. Dylan, Radio 2 and U2 were made to be together. Because I've been made very clear from Paul McGuinness, you keep us on Radio 1. You keep us young. And that was a big moment. I had to quietly put Leslie Douglas down with this U2 are going to be all on Radio 2 idea and keep them on Radio 1. Luck would have it. It was says quite a lot in life. Our oh, beautiful day, which was a great single. Had this YouTube single come in, it was all agreed this is going to be it. I've met the band, met them, right? And I rang up the head of music radio one, Alex Donnelly was his name. I said, I've got the new U2 single, right? Would you like to hear it? Well, well, I suppose I'll have to. <laughs> I mean, some of us do feel that way, to be fair, but, you know. In a cot, up to Radio 1, up to West Wales, 
up to Radio 1, you come in and put it on and Beautiful Day comes out. And you, this is where you, a plugger knows you've got 30 seconds. Don't bore us, get to the chorus. Impatient listening. This is these whole appointments, like your, your, your slot, you've got 10 minutes, maybe 10, 15 minutes. You've got two or three tunes that are priorities, another couple, and there's someone staring in the door going, you are unfinished. You're going to hurry up. My turn's my turn, right? Heaps of pressure. You've got to get through in 30 seconds. So beautiful day starts. He's sort of, oh, actually, it's, that's pretty good. Actually, it's pretty good. Yes, you're pretty good. Well, you sound see you can get to play it then. Right, so that was like the classic case of the head of music going, "All right, well, I'm boss, right? It's not down to it's not down to me to go. This is going on. You get support. You go and round, and if enough people come back going, we've got a playlist, which is what happened with Paul Weller, whereas Sarita and Lucy going, Paul Weller, Paul Weller, Paul Weller. Right, I need to now do it with you too. The luck would have it. Simon Mayo and Joe Wiley were both still on the station." And massive fans. And I had both of them come up to me and go, I want a session. You know, I want it. I want a session. I want a session. I want a session, right? And I had to sit the pair of them down and go, look, they're not going to do two sessions, are they? Yeah, no, I suppose not. So we're going to have to do this together. You're going to have to do it together and make it big, but big and special for you two got to do it together. And it was done. It was exactly done that. I think he was on first. He was 10 to 1 or whatever. Then she came on, and they announced it at the same moment when the DJs do all that, you know, hi, how are you? So they announced the U2 session together. And then we did it at Made a Veil together. But that sealed it that I had two major daytime DJs on side. Bang, we're playing Beautiful Day. Bang, we've got a session on the playlist. So that then was that, and that sealed us for three albums. can't remember when Radio 2 came on board. I can't remember if they played this a beautiful day. I can't remember whether they played this as Vertigo or not. They may have playlisted some of the softer ones that came after it. As it went on, so if it's this level on period from 2001, 2004, we did stuff for every radio station. We did stuff for everyone. We took him into Capital Radio. They did. Chris Evans by now is on Virgin Radio. We're at the Virgin Radio. They worked hard. We did something for Radio 2. We did that. We did this. We did that. And I famously got on back on top of the pops and CD UK. That was a big thing. Got them to do what was considered kids TV. That's well. It was an interesting as a Weller fan where. Yeah, you know, if you think about my, my, me growing up, discovering Weller, and then you're going through that journey and you're, you know, I love radio. You know, it's all I ever wanted to do was be a radio presenter. I consume radio all the time. And suddenly you had that switch where I'm listening to him and he did like a live gig on Radio One. And then the next time, the next album is Radio Two. And you're like, Oh fuck, I'm getting older. <laughs> yeah, he did. It would have been that. I didn't do when he went to Virgin, he went to V2 and I didn't do that. So I did heavy soul, modern classic, heliocentric and. I think I did Illumination. Yeah, because he'd have been on um, Independiente back with Andy McDonald at that point, right? Yeah, yeah the one that did the Studio Studio 150. That was when John Weller, oh, John Weller was great. John and Kenny. John and Kenny were fantastic. Like, no other artist had the management like John and Kenny. Like, this is what's happening. This is the deal. Did you get roped into the card score? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a funny story. 
Johnny and Kenny were like, you didn't mess with them, and this is what they wanted, this is what they needed, this is what this is what got to be. I didn't get into the, the budget side of it, but whatever was needed for a video, to do a session, there was obviously musicians, roadies, equipment had to be got somewhere, whatever it cost. Right, so that was that. And um, arranged to do a regional radio tour with Paul. So that would have been after Stanley Road. So maybe on Heavy Soul or something. There was um, time to, like, you know, broaden broaden this out, as it were. Let's do a regional radio tour. We met Heathrow at, like, 8 in the morning, and we were going to fly. My regional radio guy, he'd gone ahead. He was already up there in Glasgow or something. And I was coming up with Kenny, John, and Paul. And we're going to fly up, meet him, and then we'd all go in. Equipment was all coming from somewhere all the rest. And he was going to do a session for big Glasgow radio station session. And there were winners. There were people who wanted to be at this. He'd agreed to do it. I'll play, and they'll be there. Fine. <laughs> it's a bit windy, right? George goes, I'm getting in a bloody plane. That bloody car door near just blew off. No way I'm getting in a plane. We're not going by plane. Get us some trains. Metal company marketing, right? There's a problem. We're not flying. We need trains. Whatever flights were cancelled, and we had to sort out train tickets. Then the problem of like to fly to Glasgow takes what, an hour or something. We now had to get this train ride. So we had to get to King's Cross. It was like all done on the phone. Like, what well, train times in King's Cross? We had to sort out these train times to get there. And it was a bit of a rush. So we got on the train, Gatwick Express, got out of Paddington, and there wasn't a taxi in sight. Everyone's used. It's like, everyone in taxi, taxi. I said, we have to get the underground. <laughs> and I was going underground with Paul Weller at nine in the morning, right? <laughs> the train was packed. So we somehow buy tickets, you know, or buy tickets, get, no, no, no Oyster cars then, nothing like that, buy a ticket then. And we're on the tube train, and Paul's quiet, right? And the people suddenly sort of clocked him, and it very polite. A couple of people got up and went, excuse me, I'm sorry, I can't believe you're on this tube train. Love you all. <laughs> Signing bits of newspaper and things for, like, people on this tube train. And we got the kids cross. And then, first class, of course, got on a train. Paul says, I'm having a kick. So I think he'd been out the night before. He said, I'm having a kick. So he went to go to sleep. And then it really was like about 10 in the morning. And Kenny had gone go, well, deal, we're going to play cards or nothing. And uh, we get some red wine, please. <laughs> and, of course, I couldn't suddenly go, oh, no, I'll, just have, I'll just have a cup of tea. It's all right. I had to go in for a penny, in for the pound, right? And started playing cards. Free card brag, I think it was. Started playing cards and drinking red wine all the way to Glasgow. So, you know, Paul didn't drink. We got there and then we had a bus where a coach was taking us down the rest of it. We had time. We somehow got there. We had time to get to the hotel. Paul got the coach. He was happy. He had a record box. He had his singles box. He had a box of his singles and he had a record player. He took with him. Yeah, his favourite record was Spots. He, and he was focused on what he was going to do. I said to my guy, Simon, I said, I want a bit of drink here. I'm about to go along with the flow. So you do all the chat. And then it, it kind of went all right, you know. And then and we carried on and we went on this bus and we stayed in hotels. That was Paul Weller. We, we're going to a service station. You know, you need the toilet. People will go, and they come up and we're spilling pool and water. We sign everything. The thing about the card games is you you can't claim that back on expenses, can you? I think actually I got bailed out 
I did because I kind of told what happened. And the record company guy was really relieved that I'd actually sorted out the train fare and got them there and got all it. We didn't miss the train and I'd sorted it all out and it wasn't my fault that we weren't going to fly. And this is what happened. And I think they took pity on me. I was bailed out. I want to talk about unfinished business in a second, which is a cracking story. But before I ask you about that, let me ask you about Stone Foundation, because this has been a band that you've been plugging for quite a while, not just with the Weller connection, which I guess made it a little easier, perhaps, I don't know, but pre-Weller, right? Basically, I met Sheesby, bass player. He approached me at an Oasis book launch, I remember rightly. He went, oh, you're in the plug. He does, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in this band, Stone Foundation. We're trying to get somewhere. So this was about 10 years ago now. But I went to see him. He had a gig at 100 Club, maybe. I played Bush Hall. And I got involved with them. They were on some little label. Started plugging them. They were great, you know. So we went on. But never been easy. Craig Charles was an early supporter. But never got a playlist. And then Paul Weller produced them. And that catapulted to some extent. But even still, they never got a playlist. It's mad, isn't it? I, don't, I can't understand why Radio 2 are not playlists. Well, they just were careful what I say here. Paul Weller, of course, was releasing a lot of records. And Paul Weller was all over Radio 2 playlists. Paul Weller was all over later with Jules Holland. I think he's the artist who's been on there the most times. Mm. Virtually every album, Paul Weller is on later with Jules Holland, right? So Stone Foundation are sort of in the shadow of like the, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. So the Paul Weller connection, there was one, there's one song, Paul Weller's all over the video, the lot. And it's just fantastic. Robert Elms, massive supporter on BBC London, but he's the number one DJ supporter. Robert Elms, undoubtedly. So Radio 2 has been a struggle to get them embraced there completely. In fact, really, they kind of, Given up on that and just go, you know what we do? We sell out these gigs. We can sell out Chet's Bush Empire and do that. We do our physical products. People love a seven inch single. They love the vinyl, the, the albums, whatever. We do all this and we market it on social media. One of the best bands at social media, the two Neils, right? They're their own personal pages. So lots of stuff about what they're doing on their holidays and that. And they've got a band page and they just hammer it, hammer it, hammer it. A fan base are, are there. Which is gradually expanding, getting through a bit electric ballroom they did, and they will sell that product. And whether they get on a playlist, they're like, you know what, whatever. I guess that's also how the industry has changed so much. If you think back to, you know, the beginning of your journey on this, it was all about sales, right? And then it became about, I guess, about live and merch. And now we're into it's all about stream and how many millions of streams. But that bit where you're earning money is the live and the merch, I guess, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Well, now it's. The, the sales of music, as we know, have gone down. It is all about you've got to somehow be live and you sell merch, right? And the streaming is a pitiful income unless you've got big numbers, but you need major big numbers. If you're Ed Sheeran and Adele, you're earning all right out of it, but you otherwise... whopping amount of money. And that's their argument. They should pay that fortune. And there are, in fairness, in fairness, and this is um, quite a few people have said this. They said... Uh, if only we had this now, where you can talk direct to an audience. You know, you don't have to worry about the music press. You don't have to worry about radio. You just go here. You know, there were some artists came out of MySpace. Arctic Monkeys were that, weren't they? And they were the first ones to work with them. And they had that six-track demos that spread, the MP3. Those six demos spread. 
and those tracks spread and spread and spread. They were getting pretty big. In fact, the album release had to be brought forward. That was 2004. I got a phone call from Lawrence Bell. He says, would you like to do the Arctic, the Arctic Monkeys? And I first saw them in Brighton, Comedia, it was called. And very quickly, but that, that was the MP3, and it spread like wildfire. So then we had it all set up to come out in the, the late end of January, I think it was brought forward, like to, to stop bootlegs and stop them and just get it out. And then obviously that now goes on. It is still... Yeah, you want to be on the radio. You, you know, don't get me wrong. You want to be on, you know, sort of Rolling Stones are very happy. You know, Angry is on every playlist, on the A list as well, not on the C list, not on Radio 1. But they've got their own mission. You know, the, the, the Rolling Stones social media machine is just a machine of endless clips of this, that, and the other from the past, from now, from Hackney Empire, whatever. So bang, 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 bang. And they're doing merchandise, one of the most absolutely most brilliant executed releases promotion ever. And I've worked on some big releases, right? Oasis and U2, etc. right? But what the Stones have done with Hackney Diamonds is phenomenal. It's taking over the tube station and all that as well, isn't it? Every trick. But, you know, the genie comes out of the bowl, then is genie any good? It actually is. That's the thing. The track, the second track as well, the Sweet Sound of Heaven, is fantastic. So they have delivered. Now, let me fast forward to 2020. So we're in COVID, we're in lockdown, and you return to the rock star dream. Well, this is what happened, right? So I'm um, an older plugger now, right? I do a lot of old punks. I do a lot of people that like to be called old. I do people like the members. This is the sound of the suburbs. I do Midger, and I did a documentary with Blitz Club. I do the T-Rex catalogue. I'll do Gary Crowley's box sets. There's still pressure. There's still pressure. But it's not super hard pressure. But there is, I'll tell you now, there is still pressure. Like, you've got to get us on six music. You've got to get this. So you're still, you're high. There's still pressure to get results, right? So I'm in an older market. So I've grown, like, like the DJs, gracefully grown older. Us pluggers are old as well, right? Right. I've been doing the Doctors of Madness. Richard Strange, he's a great, he's got a story and half. He's fantastic. And TV Smith, the adverts, they put these records out. Don't panic England. And it's a different world. Doctors of Madness never really happened. They were somewhere like there were elements of Roxy music about them. Punk killed them off. And Richard Strange has got a great story when he, he let the, the Sex Pistols supported them. And when they were off, Steve Jones went into dressing room and nicked all their money. <laughs> Richard Strange saw the Sex Pistols and realised, he went, that's it. He realised that his band had had it. That was the thing about punk. Joe Strummer saw the Pistols and realised the one on one wouldn't happen. So that was the revolution of it, another revolution. Right, where are we then? So anyway, moving back to modern times. Right, so 2020 hit, COVID, right? And I'm here, we're locked down. It's like... <laughs> You know, every day on the news is like, oh, get it, I'll kill you, right? And it was like, Jesus Christ. So I had this track, going back to the fact that everyone said that I had this great song called Watching Breaks. In 2011, I was managing some people. Another long story, we'll be another three hours. <laughs> I managed Glenn Matlock with Clem Burke in a band called the International Swingers, which James Stevens put me onto. But they never toured, so it was never successful. But I've released seven albums by different people. None of them have been super successful. 
but I had a record I was at. And one of these guys I managed, he was in a band that was a bit like Snow Patrol, probably a bit too much like Snow Patrol. But he was a very skillful musician. And he, he said, you know, keep banging on about this song. Come around my flat. I've got a home studio. I'll record it for you. And I went to this guy's flat in Harleston. He said, well, let's play it. So I played it on acoustic guitar, get a tempo. He played this song. And then about a week later, he went, you know, and he put drums on it, guitar on it, the lot. And he'd done it. I went, I can't believe it. Thank you so much. You want to be helped us out? You can stab it. And that was that. And I just sat on it. I had no confidence to release it. No confidence. I couldn't stand the sound of my own voice. I had no confidence. And I just played it every now and then. Someone along the way did a better mix. I did another mix for you. And about a year later, another mix turned up. And I was sat on it. Anyway, we got to this point here now. And I just thought, if I got COVID, I was 62 at that point. I'm 62, and I think if I got this COVID, I could die, and I've never released a record. It's quite serious. I thought, I've got to do it. I've got to do it. And uh, I rang up this guy, Carl Parsons, who does art. He does the artwork. He'd done artwork for International Swingers, which is Clem Burke's band, Glenn Matlock. He'd done artwork for The Alarm, proper graphic art guy. I went, I need some art for a record. You know, who's it by? It was by me. What? What? It was by me. What do you mean? Why me? I'm missing the record. What? So I played him the track and went, dude, it's really good. It's all right. So he'd come up with his artwork with cranes and that. So I got this thing together. I thought, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So I got my record label. I got my codes. I got it all set up. I uploaded it, did it all. And I had to go to radio, right? And I was so nervous. Plugging your own thing, right? Yeah. I knew when the playlist was. I knew the moment. I knew that this was the time it had to go in or I'm going to miss the boat completely. And I was dithered about, I dithered, dithered about for like all day. And like in the afternoon, about three, four o'clock, I got to it. And all of a sudden, went. And the next thing I knew, I could see people listening to it. And then within two days, Janice Long rang me up. Well, Dylan, it's fantastic. I'm going to play it. And what? Oh, it's great. This record of yours. It's real fun. I'm going to play it. And I was like, I don't believe it. And uh, of course, you're BBC Wales at this point. And she read out my whole introduction and played it. And she played it numerous times. I just thought, well, praise the Lord, there's life in this year. Because once he got played on the radio, I had to then come out on my social media and go, ah, just been played on Janice Long. Thank you, Janice Long. Because always you thank a DJ for playing your record. You always, yeah. you get played, you thank the DJ. Thank them on hang the DJ. You thank the DJ. Thank the DJ. Gobble, <laughs> gobble, gobble. Thank the DJ. Thank the DJ. You have to listen again, Link. You can hear it here. And with that spread like wildfire, next time I've got Alan McGee on the phone. Look, Dylan, hey, he's great, man. It sounds like 1981. What's because I wrote it in 1981? Hey, Dylan, man, it should have been a hit in 1981. <laughs> <laughs> right, Johnny Walker said it was great and that. And I thought, praise the Lord, you know. And I sent it to, uh, again, through the Clem Burke connections, I knew John, Ronnie Bingerheimer, producer in America, Ronnie Bingerheimer being the, the John Peel of uh, British music in America, and he played it. Amazing. That started the ball rolling to think, well, I can do it. I mean, you know, and then I got Spotify played. Look, I'm not, I'm not going to be making any money here, right? So it had an element of plays, and that was that. And I thought, well, I'm going to see if I could do any more. And I got out the cassette box, which we spoke about some time ago, and started going through tunes you know and i just used to literally sit here and like and go well does this one work i've got a little player i could convert cassettes into mp3s so put the little player put the cassette in god i haven't heard this for donkey's years you know i haven't heard this at all you know bloody i haven't heard this for so long you know 
And then, of course, we're still in lockdown. There's no wool going out. And I just gradually worked them out. And I went back through these tunes. Some of them, I thought, needs a bit more another verse or needs a middle A or needs something, you know? So I'd work on them. I learned how to use garage bands. You spend quite a lot of time with that. So you get the tempo right. And then you play it and get the arrangement. You go, are you happy with it? You know, we maybe do it again. So you work it and I look at the lyrics and think, well, are they, what in Cranes is exactly as it was written on the exactly it. And the next two I did, one of them I changed the chorus. That was Caught by Love. I changed the chorus there. And the one after that, Designs on That Girl, I added more verses and I played around with the arrangement. But then having done three singles, I thought, is there more in this? And I started gigging again. An opportunity came up, as luck would have it. There was a Faith Brothers celebration night for Billy Franks. This was the yeah. Hammersmith Club in Fulham, right? June 2022. And your first gig in 30 years. And Dan Lawton, the singer of Well Loaded, was supposed to do it. Because we were all Faith Brothers fans, right? And he couldn't do it because he lives in Whitstable and he had some festival do something else. So there was a gap on the bill. And I didn't have to, but I went, I could do that. And I put myself forward to do it. And I couldn't believe it. My last gig was my 30th birthday. Last gig I did was a half moon supporting Well Loaded in 1990. And this was my time on stage. And I had to have the lyrics on a bit of paper. And I played. And I did it. And I thought, well, I can do it. So then I started finding out about open mic nights. I've done loads and loads of them. Loads. And I get up and play. And I do my own songs, and I do a covers. So I've learned some covers, usually when someone dies. So I did Back in the Night, Wilco Johnson, with Hi-Ho Silver Lining. I do a few rock and roll songs like Rave On or Slow Down. Slow Down, which, of course, Jam did. Slow Down. Oh, what a song. But Because he picked up on that, Monster Rock and Roll. Simple songs. And then uh, I thought, well, I've got more. By this point, I'd, I'd recorded now more and more. Again, luck would have it. James Stevenson, who I've known since the days of Chelsea and Generation X and all of it, and then we had this band, the International Swingers. He's a guitarist. He then had his solo stuff, and he had a gig at Soho Pizzeria on a Sunday night in December of 2021, I think it was. And, uh, oh, God, Sunday night, I can do without this, really. But went up there, and Smiley... It was, I knew from drumming with Joe Strummer, who I'd worked with, right? There's another old story. Was playing an acoustic guitar. I went, I went, I want you to realize that you played as well. I thought you were just a drummer. He went, well, I've released seven albums. I've got a whole studio and I'm working on my eighth album. I went, oh, right. I said, um, yeah, well, I've got these songs, you know, and I'm kind of a bit on my own, you know? He went, well, I'll play everything. I can play it all for you and you can promote my music. So that's what we did. Nice little contra deal. I like it. <laughs> So I paid him an element of money and I promoted his album. And I helped him out a lot. I helped him out. I looked at his social media, looked at his website, got him set up on Wikipedia. I helped sort of manage and sort out how he looked and how it all was and plugged his records. But for me, it was like hearing these songs from like 45 years ago, right? I'm 20 years old, right? Hearing these songs. By this point, I'm, I'm 64. Right, hearing these songs, and they got drums on them, then they got bass on them, then they got guitars on them, and he knew he knew what I wanted. He knew that you know there's hardly any like no 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 A couple of bits of that where I just said no, it's a bit weak. He went, no, I know what you want. Right, basically the guitars sound like Ronnie Wood and sound like Mick Jones. That's the the guitar sounds, and that was it. You know, and then we mixed it. I went there to mix it with him, 
But he just set it all up and there's a few little little bits. That was in February, and I planned it all to release it now. So the official release date was September. The digital release date was earlier. I went to radio with tracks. I've had some support. I've got someone who helps me with Spotify. I'm getting some traction there, and I've got a press agent. The press agent does so foundation. I work with him a lot. A guy called Chris Hewlett. He does status quo, does Steve Harley, our age group of stuff, right? And when I did the singles, he said, don't do press on the singles. You do an album, we can talk. So lo and behold, it's come good because uh, I paid him and he did me a mate's rate. And he has got me loads of press. I mean, there, um, this magazine, I'm on my name's on the cover. I saw that the other day. Ace Day with Selector on the front, right? But I've just had, it's just landed. I've got a Who Are You in Viva La Rock. Wow, cool. <laughs> the dream's coming true, man. The rock, the rock star thing's happening. And, and, and an album. Now, the Who Are You, like, I wrote it, right? Well, they sent me the questions and I wrote, but there's an album review and the album review's fantastic. Amazing. Well, well done you, man, because that takes a lot of bottles, doesn't it, to come out of your comfort zone to do that at this time, you know? Well done, Dylan. I'm going to put all these details in the show notes. I'll put the album there. It's called Unfinished Business. It's out right now. 13 songs, 12 of them from those original cassettes. There's also a wicked cover of a, of the Sister Sledge song, Lost in Music, which sounds yeah. more like The Fall than it does Sister Sledge, to be fair, but that's the idea, right? That's the idea, because this is the story of that, because I plugged The Fall. Now, Marky Smith, wow, God bless He could be our work, though. Oh, my. Um, Marky Smith was a bit of a wild one. He could be tricky. Listen to The Fall doing Lost in Music. It's on infotainment, right? But lyrically, it's all over the place. Right? Marky Smith barely sings any of the words, right? And I just thought it could be so much better if it was like that music, like Rocky, but sing the proper lyrics. And that's all I've done. It's a terrific listen, honestly. You can tell this, your influences from that time still bearing fruit now, whether it's Iggy Pop, the Stooges, whether it's, um, Lou Reed, that kind of ethos yeah, I know. I've got in it, right? I can't sing. I can't sing. So it's, it's deadpan. I'm getting a little bit better, more confident, but I'm an other limited vocal range, put it that way. Two questions before you go. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life, Dylan. It can be the jam, the style council or solo. What would you go with? Oh, don't do that to me. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that you, know, to, uh, you can't do that to me one song so we spoke with her bitterest pill uh, you know what uh, that really meant a lot to me it's a, a, a great song one Paul Weller song obviously you could have you know Broken Stones and that Broken Stones is brilliant you know and more recently you had that one No More Tears that's a great shoot see every every single album every time that is his ability. He can have these great songs, you know, Peacock Suit and that, you know, the floorboard, the floorboards one. Floorboards up, yeah. Every time there's these great songs, you know. But going back, never mind, you know, Town Called Madison and all of that, you know, I'm going to go bitter his pill. Final question. So the purpose of this podcast, Dylan, is for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. If only I'd got in touch with you as a plugger, that would have been lovely. <laughs> you could have made that happen easily. I was on Orchard FM, the dizzy heights of Orchard FM in Somerset. I was on, um, I spent quite a lot of time with the BBC in Bristol and Somerset. And then I was on Mercury in Crawley. BBC in Bristol, that might, that could have maybe worked. Oh man, now you're telling me. Regional plugging thing. But when we did this regional tour around that, that is when it could have happened. Oh man. That would have been like 97, 98 when I was there as well. Damn it. That would have taken. Yeah, someone from the station you to go in touch with. The, I had a regional team. 
there is still are regional pluggers, right? That will sort out interviews around the country. There still are, right? Very active. So I had a regional team and they dealt with what was happening. There was a girl called um, Julie. I'm sure she did Paul Weller in the end. Julie, Julie Barnes. She lives in Glasgow. She is the region. She runs Radioactive now who look after Paul. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. Well, that's the whole point. They're in the regions, right? So she, I don't know if she's a Paul Weller anymore, but she did Paul Weller with me for quite a while. Could have happened back in the day. Right. So the final question is the purpose of this podcast is to get the interview with Paul that I never managed during my radio career, Dylan. If it happens off the back of this podcast, the end of this podcast series with Mr. Weller, what should I ask him? How do you write songs? What happens? Most people get up and then might have a cup of tea and go to work. Well, go out and wash the car, whatever, put telly on. Got a football mat, they get ready to do something. But clearly you get up and what makes you pick up the guitar? What makes you sit at the piano? And what, so what makes you pick up the notepad and what makes you write songs? I love that. Hey man, this has been such a joy, Dylan. I knew it would be. I enjoyed it. We've been here for like quite a while. <laughs> uh, lovely to see you, man. Thanks so much. See you later. Then. My thanks once again to Dylan White for joining me on the podcast. If you want to find out more details about unfinished business, then head to my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com and the show notes for this very episode. Whilst you're there, you can dive into my store, get yourself some official podcast merchandise, all online, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. You can even buy yourself a virtual coffee. Doing exactly that over the past week or so. Hello to Peter E. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Hello to Mass and Mari Walsh. Hope I pronounced that right. And kids and dog and cats who said, love the Dr. Robert podcast. I said on Twitter, I owed you a coffee. So here you go, Dan. Enjoy. Well, bless you. Hello to Martin Bonhom. Hi, Mike C. Hello to Simon Carslidge. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Hello, Martin Glover. Hello to Andy Cliff, who says, there you go, Dan. Been meaning to buy you a coffee for a while now. Thoroughly enjoyable series and your love and passion for Mr. Weller always shines through. Top man. Best wishes. Andy from the borough. Thank you, Andy. If you want to get involved, just head to my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. You can get in touch on social media on X at wellerfanpod or on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. Just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. And just a little heads up, once again, an extra episode this coming Friday. That's the 10th of November, 2023. If you're following this journey as we release them, my very special guest will be Simon O'Brien talking about his journey from the Star Council fan to member of the road crew. Look out for that extra episode popping up wherever you get your podcasts. Follow, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.